Hi, welcome to another Pharmacy and Practice podcast. Got a very interesting um, pharmacist um, with us today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, Jonathan. It's another Jonathan here, Jonathan Underhill, uh, and I'm a medicines clinical advisor at NICE, the, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Excellent. Um, first, very important question. Does your does your name have an H in it? Two H's. J-O-N. Yours has an H it doesn't uh, I'm I'm uh, yeah, so so don't don't forget the H if my mother's about it. Well and, and the opposite for my mum. If anyone calls actually my, my wife calls me Johnny and my mum always calls me Jonathan. So Oh see my mate, that's <laughs> she'll my mother will correct you. Anyway, this yeah. is uh, this is nothing to do with uh, <laughs> your leading age pharmacy practice, which we're about to delve into. So um I guess let's start with how how like how long have you been on the register um, and you know potted history very yes. quickly of your career to date because you're you're in a an advanced uh, sort of leadership position now really aren't you? Quite you don't say that don't don't tell any of my team that. <laughs> so um, no so I kind of I, I did my degree at, at Sunderland uh, from eighty six to nineteen eighty nine. Um, then did my pre-reg at the Royal Marsden in London, which was fantastic. Great place to go to be for, as a pre-reg because, and we'll get to talk about this later, I think, just the, the sense of um, having mentors and other people in the same position as you in London. I very quickly got to meet about 30 or 40 other pre-reg pharmacists, which was great. Um, I went from there into a basic grade rotation at Westminster Hospital and then we became Chelsea Westminster Hospital. And then after that, I sort of made a decision that I, I, I wanted to do something around medicines information, drug information, um, or perhaps journalism, Interesting, interestingly. Ooh. So I, went to, I got a job at the Royal Free in the medicines information department there, worked there for three years. And then in 1995, I got a job at um, the National Prescribing Centre. So the National Prescribing Centre was a uh, Department of Health funded organisation whose job was to provide education and training to pharmacists, nurses and doctors about prescribing and medicines. Uh, and I also produced a we also produced a publication called the Merrick Bulletin, uh, which some listeners might remember if, if they've got a similar edge to me, um, and where, where every Every month or so, we produce something similar to, to the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin, where we do a review of a new medicine or a review of a therapeutic area or uh, something else that was important in, 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 in sort of in the practice of, of medicine or pharmacy. Um, so I started off there and then very quickly got a, a real, I, I realized that journalism wasn't the, the career for me. And instead, people told me I was actually quite good at, uh, at, at education. So um, we, we went from, from there to setting up a Training the Trainers program where we taught therapeutics to prescribing advisors, GPs and uh, nurse prescribers. Um, and we had about 3,000 people coming along to our workshops at the, at the National Prescribing Centre. Wow. And we very, very quickly realised that we couldn't do this just with three or four people. So we set up a Train the Trainer program. Uh, where we ended up with about initially about 20 um, uh, what we called NPC trainers 
who we would provide them with educational materials. They'd come along to us for a day and we'd teach them the educational materials, the therapeutic materials. Um, and then they'd come back a month later and then they'd teach us about what they'd learned and how they were going to deliver this to their to their communities. And then they went out and ran therapeutic workshops on, on our behalf. And as I said, we, we ended up getting out to about three, 4,000 people. Um, and we'd do about four topics a year with that. Um, that expanded then because we then got we, we were quite good at it. So the DH says, here's, here's some more money. Can you do something to help support nurse prescribing and then pharmacist prescribing? Um, and then, and then um, yeah, it, it went off from there. And then about nine years ago, um, we, we used to work quite closely with NICE anyway. NICE was set up in uh, 20 years ago. Um, and then about nine years ago, um, the decision was taken that the National Prescriber Centre would merge with NICE or become part of NICE. So that's where I've been since then. I work in the medicines team at NICE. We've got a team of about 20 people within the medicines team. Most of them are pharmacists. Most of them are very, very high performing and, and very clever people. Um, and we sort of help support the, the guideline productions, the clinical guidelines that are produced, the technology appraisals that are produced by NICE. Um, we've also continued with the, um, the, the network inside of things as well. So we have what are called NICE associates. And we've got about 90 of these individuals across, mostly in England, but also in Wales and Northern Ireland um, and, and the Channel Islands as well. And again, They'll, we'll get together about four times a year, talk about new NICE guidelines that have come out, and then they will go out and have discussions within their communities about what the implementation issues are around the, around the NICE guidelines. So, yes, that was, that's me. <laughs> Very good. Well, really, really interesting uh, career path. I, I'm going to um, completely depress you here, though, because uh, in 1986, I was, when you started uni, I was three years old. <laughs> well, I've actually got quite a few people on my team who say those sorts of things to me as well. Do um, they? So, yes, it is, it is quite uh, quite depressing sometimes. Right. Well, not, not very good. With, um, Keith Ridge, the chief, the chief pharmacist in England, has got a, has started a, a pharmacy fellow programme where every year we get young uh, sort of pharmacy professionals who are looking to... But, oh, have been earmarked as they've been the, the, the kind of the future leaders of the profession, and and they're all even younger than you, the people who do that. So I feel really old um, <laughs> when um, when we're interviewing those those guys. But just on that note, I'm going to pivot the conversation towards that. Then one of one of the things I and we'll come back to your your role at Nice and because there's a lot there's a lot there around decision making and uh, leadership in that space that I'd like I'd like to ask you about, but. Um, you mentioned fellowship. Um, one question that's on my mind at the moment, and it is off topic a wee bit, but wondered if you had any thoughts on it. How do you think we should reward high-performing or excellent pharmacists uh, in our profession, Jonathan? Have you any ideas? Because we've got, I mean, I should set the context. So we've got, you know, you've got the trade association and trade body, trade press awards. Yeah. Um, ah, they're they're good fun, but but they're you know there are there are pros and cons to that as I'm sure those listening can read between the lines and work out, um, and it tends to be the same faces, isn't it? And then you know we've got we've got other fellowship um, type um, awards that are are nominated by peers in 
in various organisations, which again, <laughs> listeners could put two and two together and work out who I'm talking about. But and, and each have their merit. But it's just I just think it's so important with so much negativity in our profession. I think it's it's it could be seen as a frivolous question, but in my view, it's actually very important. What do you think? Um, so I think it depends very much on what motivates you as an individual. Mm. Um, I suspect most people, most pharmacists, don't go into the pharmacy profession because they want to make shed loads of money and receive fame and fortune. Now, there will be some individuals for, for whom that, that is a motivation, but I think most people, and most people will go and work in the NHS because they want to become a be part of a caring profession um, and do a good job and get a sense of reward for doing that good job by helping people in in the struggles of their lives and the struggles may well be about the medicines that they choose to take or not. Um, so I think there's something about having, and I think what what, what the what the prof- what the professional leadership can do is make it easy for people to share best practice. So if they've done something that's good, tell be able to tell other people about that so they can also replicate that and do that themselves. I think there's a role for supporting individuals perhaps who are struggling and don't know whether they're doing a good job or not, or in the situations where the, the, the inevitability of making a mistake happens in clinical practice, and rather than um, punishing people for making mistakes, I think we need to get much better at just accepting that human beings are fallible and we will make mistakes. Now, clearly there's a difference between that and negligence where you've gone about something in an in a incompetent way, but most people will, don't do that and um, people will make mistakes. And then what happens? What, what's the support network that happens for, the, for, for those individuals if that happens? Um, I think we're getting better at that and we're more open now than we ever used to be about admitting to making mistakes. But we can do much better on that, and that's where the whole resilience thing comes in as well. How do you how do you learn to be resilient? Well, again, there's probably no shortcut to to that, but it's about having that that, that support in place where people can help you through those diff- dark, difficult days where you know you feel bad because you've made a mistake. I remember the first time I made a dispensing area working in a hospital um, in London. I just felt sick to my stomach, thinking, "Crikey, I could have harmed someone here." By making this dispensing error, but I very quickly realised that that was inevitable. It should be a rare event, but it's inevitable that you're going to make mistakes. The question is, how do you learn from those mistakes? And 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 the only way to do that is to be open and, and to say, well, I was in this situation, and this is what happened to me. How can we all learn from that as 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 a profession? Um, so yeah, but, but I, I, I'm with you on this whole sort of thing. You know, the the awards. Um, sort sort of culture that we have in in certain professions, um, and I'm I, personally I'm not a massive fan of, of 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 big big awards, other than to showcase where really really good work has occurred. Um, and you know, so we had we have shared learning awards at Nice, for example, where someone's done a really really good piece of implementation of Nice guidelines, and you know what other people are struggling with this. Let's show people how they did it and the mistakes that they made and the, 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 the levers that they used to to improve the implementation. And maybe other people can learn from that. So I'm a big fan of that sort of thing. Yeah, I think I think we're on the same kind of 
same page, kind of uh, quite a, a moderate middle ground position on that. But I suppose to get like to get pharmacists to that recognition or or, or um, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, you know, to highlight that good practice, we maybe requires leadership. So do you think um, I wanted to ask you about leadership? So do you, do you think one, do you think leadership could be taught? Um, who should be teaching leadership and what should they be teaching? Okay. Um, I think leadership can be taught or you can be taught to be a better leader than you are naturally. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like with all things, I mean, I've done a management um, diploma um, a few years ago and there were some, and, and people, people told me that I was actually quite a good manager and quite a good leader naturally but I did this course and I, I and people tell me I was so much better after that having done a little bit of sort of you know time for reflection on my own on my own practice um so I think um I don't think you can teach someone who wasn't a natural leader to be a you know a Nelson Mandela I think clearly that's yeah. a that, that, that that's someone who's born to that but I do think like with most things a bit of good sound education um, and uh, lots of different aspects of education, not only taught education, but mentoring and support can really help you become become a good leader. I mean, I'm sure we've all got people within our lives. I've got a no, I was very lucky within my career to come across a number of people who were, you could just tell they were not, they were really, really good leaders. And the impact that they had on me as an individual was immense. So I was very lucky to meet, there's a guy called Jim Smith, who was the uh, chief pharmacist before before Keith Ridge? I met him when I was eighteen, um, in in my uh, local hospital when I was a vacation student, and he came and he was he, he met one of the other pharmacists, the medicines information pharmacist who was working in there, and he chatted to me for about an hour about um, pharmacy and why it was such a great profession and all the rest of it, and that had a profound effect on me. Because I thought, quite there's this really, really important busy man, and he's spending an hour talking to me, a kind of a pharmacy student about, and his passion for pharmacy and where pharmacy needs to go as a profession really came through. And I've had a number of individuals along along the lines, uh, 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 along the road of like that. So I think exposing people, you know, early career pharmacists to to to, to leaders. And good leaders is really, really important. Can have a profound effect on those individuals for for, for their future career. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I totally agree with you, Jonathan. I wouldn't. Always, the only thing I would add to that is I wouldn't assume that those mentors have to be pharmacists. Two of them, two of the the most important mentors in my career so far. One was a pharmacy technician who was just like, I don't know. She just ran the dispensary, like yeah. Like a military operation. Yeah, um, I've fantastic. had that too. Yeah, Brilliant. absolutely. Um, and the other, the other person was was my current practice manager. Yeah. Um, excellent. Just in terms of the management toolbox, yeah. Um, she won't mind me saying she's she's just got it all and yeah. so modest and um, she can handle. Uh, you know, she can she can work with complex issues and 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 yeah. all the stuff that comes across a GP's desk, which is really complex. Um, so I think what can happen from from the centre, whether it's NHS England, whether it's RPS or whatever, is there are clearly good people out there doing a really really good job. Get them into mentorship roles, and and actually I'd say pay them 
to do that as well, mm. or at least give them some protected time so that they can do that to spend not just their own time with um, with young pharmacists, but you know, on a regular basis. You know, I, can, can you imagine if we had a mentoring network where people could tap into that, find an individual, and spend a, you know a couple of hours a, a month either face to face, meeting over coffee, or just on the phone or by Skype. I just think that would make a huge difference to to people who are perhaps struggling with where do I go from here? What do I do in this situation? Yeah, and I think I think you're you're it's a really interesting point because it's those people that are struggling quietly, um, you know, quietly under pressure, not knowing if they're really practicing safely or correctly, and and it's it's it, we really need to create an environment where they can just quietly put up their hand and say, look, I need some help. Exactly. Is that okay? Um, no, I totally get you. Anyway, I want to I want to um, I want to talk about your role in Nice a wee bit more because that is really interesting. So, what talk me through what evidence based medicine is? Because I suppose the background to this is that pharmacists hang their hat on uh, on being scientists and in inverted commas, and I I don't know, maybe a bit controversial, but I do wonder do we do we crave a do we crave an SOP? Do we crave a technical specification on how to do something? You know, a set of instructions. I wonder. I don't know what your view is, but is is the profession not professional enough? Uh, uh, by that I mean, do we do we stick too rigidly to guidelines? Um, fascinated to know your view on all that. Okay, I'm going to give a real politician's answer here by saying it depends. And I think it depends on the individual. I think there are some people who um stick to guidelines and SOPs rigidly and that can be harmful. It can be beneficial, but it's also harmful if you stick to them too rigidly. And there are other individuals um who are far more laissez faire with their approach and, and basically you know and, and do do things um that are perhaps not in line with best practice or or the guidelines. Um, and of course the, the the best way is probably somewhere in the middle, um, and of course, so you asked me about evidence based medicine. So, when David Sackett first def- and his and his colleagues defined evidence based medicine back in the nineteen nineties, people talk about evidence based medicine about is about using the best available evidence. Well, yes, it is, but the other three, the, the other two tenets there were individual clinical expertise and also the patient's values and preferences. Um, so it was those three things, not one on its own. Um, so with the advent of medicines optimization a few years ago, there was a big move towards patients' patient-centeredness within using medicines optimization. And that being a new thing that was going to change the, the, the paradigm. And of course, when that first came out, myself and other colleagues said, well, that's what evidence-based medicine was always supposed to be about. We've just maybe forgotten about that along the way. So I think in the, in the last few years, and NICE has been at the forefront of this actually, is about using patient-centeredness and shared decision-making as being a key part of what we do as healthcare professionals. And, and, and for example, people say, oh, well, you know, I didn't follow the, this individual didn't follow the NICE guideline on this, therefore they're practicing poorly. Well, no, not necessarily, because in every piece of nice guideline, what it says is you must take into account the individual's values and preferences when applying, important word, applying this guideline to the care of that individual. 
So people who stick rigidly to clinical guidelines and almost practice medicine by cookbook actually might end up doing more harm than good because they're applying the guideline without thinking about it. And you have to think about applying clinical evidence to the individual and importantly, take into account their values and preferences. And the only way you'll find out what someone's values and preferences are is by asking them in a way that they're more likely to volunteer what their values and preferences are. So the, the, the idea of being skilled at having meaningful conversations, I think is really, really important for healthcare professionals going forward. But in particular, I think it's really important for pharmacists going forward because I can't see doctors spending the time with patients talking about their medicines choices going forward because they just won't have time to do that. And and you could argue perhaps that the skills of a doctor are maybe best placed elsewhere rather than talking about the um, risks and benefits of a, of a medicine's choice. Pharmacists should be the people who, who know that and are able to do that in a, in a, in a skilled way. But I guess my, my worry for the, for, for, for the future of the profession is that we don't have enough people within the profession who are skilled and competent to have those meaningful conversations in a way that elicits good shared decision making um yeah i i, I agree I, I think we stumble towards and we keep falling back to the paternalistic model of practice don't we i mean I, i'm guilty of it in my own clinics so, and you know yeah diagnose tell you what to tell the patient what to do off they go with the plan you know it's and yeah. and in, in in respiratory care where i work um quite a lot it is quite guideline driven as you know and it is yeah. quite tempting just to shoehorn the patient down a, i'm not saying Absolutely. i do that but you know it is yeah. tempting to shoehorn them down the yeah in the case of asthma along the steps step one yeah. two three or whatever and some so, people get confused about what shared decision making is as well because some people think well i made the decision for the person then i shared it with them no, yeah. <laughs> you've, you've missed the point here. The point is, have you asked the person right at the start, how can I help you today? What, 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 what are your goals here? What is it you're looking for out of your medicines? Those sorts of open questions. Um, and, and again, so our, our chair at NICE, David Haslam, who's a GP by background, talks about the four questions you need for an effective consultation or the four, th four things you need to do for an effective consultation. And it's shut up, listen, because if you don't shut up, you can't really listen to your person. Um, show empathy, so care, and, and know something. Not know everything, just know something. So there's those four things that you need to, we need to be working on to, to really get good, effective consultations and, and shared decision-making within those consultations. Mm. And I, yeah, I, I've never heard that one before. Should it's really good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is really good. I was just just thinking that as you were saying it. Um, yeah, there's no such try thing, that. there's no such thing as um, uh, sort of a unique thought. All, all all of all the all the stuff that I ever do when I'm when I'm teaching, I've, I've recycled from elsewhere. <laughs> so yeah, that's definitely David Haslam. We came up with that one. But I think as well within within our profession, I. I I would hope that we could add depth to our level of skill, particularly within the consultation. I think I think 
is it unfair to say our training makes us a wee bit transactional in, t- in terms of taking a medication history? I think we need to sort of be a wee bit more open-minded. I mean, I had a consultation. You know, I had a consultation a few months ago with with a person that came in with a a sore toe, and it turned turned out it was nothing to do with it. The toe was fine. It was um, the person was feeling quite quite down and depressed. You know, so yeah, absolutely. But but I, but I almost missed it. I was yeah. almost I was almost sort of doing the you know the <laughs> the aggressive body language, standing up, holding the door to get rid of them. But uh, absolutely, but and I, again, I, I thought long and hard about that actually. Yeah, I I don't think that's uncommon, Jonathan. Mm. Um, so one of the things that we so I also ha- happen to have a sort of a teaching role at Keele University School of Pharmacy as well. Um, so one of the things that we'd be looking at at Keele is how do we help people, health healthcare professionals improve their consultation skills? And um, you know, you can talk, you, the, the, there's lessons from the av- av- aviation industry here for how you go about learning a skill. So if you're learning how to fly a jumbo jet, okay. First of all, you have some uh, sort of some there's some learning involved. Okay, so you have to go away and you have to uh, learn the the manual for how to fly the jumbo jet. Okay, the, the the second part is demonstration. So you'll watch someone who's a really really good pilot fly the plane, and then you'll watch them and and, and learn from them. Um, the, the 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 third one is is where you practice flying the plane in a safe environment. So a flight simulator would be the way that you'd do that rather than say, well, here's the plane, go away and fly it. And, and if you crash the plane, it doesn't really matter. Well, of course it does matter. But if you crash the flight simulator, it doesn't really matter. And then the fourth part is assessment. So if you apply that to consultation skills, you can teach people about the, the theory of what good, a good consultation would look like. And that's done actually quite well within uh, postgraduate education now. You can watch people who are really, really good at consultation skills, um, and that can be your clinical mentor or whatever. If, I'm sure I'm, I don't know whether you had this when you when, when you when you qualified with your um, on your IP course, but I'm sure you had a clinical mentor who was really good, yeah. and you watched them and you and and, and and that sort of thing. How do you practice in a safe environment though? Well, you can do sort of um, get actors in, or you can go and sit in a consultation with someone, and you can have a go. Um, with, with a real patient, but both of the, both of those things are actually quite quite difficult. The actor is difficult to organise. It can be variable about who you get and all the rest of it. And if you try, if you practice your consultation skills with a real person and it doesn't go very well, there's a risk that you might harm that individual person. So what we've done at Keele is, and uh, Steve Chapman, who's the uh, is the uh, used to be the head of school at, at Keele, uh, had a couple of PhD students looking at how we can um make computer generated patients so-called avatars um and maybe we can put a link onto the onto the podcast so people can go away and have a have a play with 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 the different avatars definitely love to do that yeah so essentially you're in a you're in a different different scenarios different situations one is which you're in a you're in a gp practice you're the doctor or the pharmacist and a person comes to see you um, Brian comes to see you, and he's been come, he's been told to come and see you because it, the the nurse has told him to come to see you because, to talk about statins to put you on a statin. Um, and of course, the the conversation could go along the lines of, "Okay, that's fine. Here's a tablet of statin, forty milligrams. It's only one tablet a day. Off you go." And that would make you catch up with your appointment times and all the rest of it. The the thing about this, the way that this has been set up, it's a multi morbidity. 
uh, consultation. And actually, what's bothering Brian is not the starter, it's something else, which you will only uncover if you ask open questions. So the way the avatar works is you get a series of multiple choice responses and you get to choose the one. And then when you go through the consultation, you get feedback at the end that says, well, you asked me this, but you could have asked me this, and you should have asked me this, and you didn't ask me this, but you, you did this quite well. And then you can replay it and do it again. And the computer doesn't have feelings, so it doesn't get harmed by the fact that you messed up your consultation. Um, so as I said, we've got a PhD who's just evaluated that, and it looks really – it makes a big difference to people wow. who've used it in terms of their patient-centeredness, in terms of their approach to, um, to consultations. So – I don't, again, I don't think that's, that's a panacea. It's not going to fix things. It's not going to be able to make people really, really good consultants. But I do think it helps. And there's lots and lots of stuff going on. Yeah, but you're moving. It's interesting. You're you're moving. You know that you're moving into that uh, sort of almost decision assisted space, aren't you? You know, sort of using technology to help with mm. training and so on. And um, yeah, yeah. But listen, I'm I'm constantly con support sort of things. Yes, that's what I was. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, Which I think it's, it's it's slightly different to this. So decision support is where you put in the parameters in the computer, and the computer says, "Right, here's here's what you should do." Um, and 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 there is, I think there is a role for that. And there's and again, Nice are working on we're working on that at Nice with um, how we can take guidelines that perhaps just sit sit quite flatly on their own to being able to put in the individual parameters to say, well, actually, this is where you are in the clinical guideline. These are the choices that are available to you and the, and the person for how to take this forward. Mm -hmm. um, but that still requires you to have those conversation skills to be able to put that into practice in a way that's going to help that lonely, anxious individual uh, be able to express what's important to them. Absolutely. Um, I'm conscious of time. I, I know you have to run. Um, uh, it's been, it's really been, I mean, we could probably talk all day. It's, it, it just, it feels very brief, John. I'd, I'd, yeah. uh, hopefully I'll uh, be able to catch up with you in person at some stage, but it, I just really appreciate you coming on the podcast and no. sh sharing a bit about your, your really, really interesting and um, impactful career so far. Um, so thanks very much. No, you're very welcome. I mean, again, if people are interested in this sort of thing, then, you know, there's there's papers, there's uh, online lectures that, that I've recorded with other individuals. So, again, happy for you to share those links on your on your webpage, Jonathan, if that's helpful. It and, you know, I'm happy to come on again if you want to in a year's time and talk about where we are in the profession, maybe a year down the line. Because, you know, as you said, there's lots happening. Um in England and in, and in Scotland and in, in, in Wales and in Northern Ireland around this, it's you know getting clinical pharmacists, quite frankly, out of hospitals to where the patients are, which is in primary care, is uh, is quite an interesting development. One that I'm really really keen to try and support. So, <laughs> and there's uh, yeah, it, it depends. You know, it's it's the classic glass half full or glass empty thing. There's there's a lot of challenges out there, but but. You know, I I found in my career I never thought I would be doing a portfolio. I I started off thinking, gosh, I'll I'll qualify as a as a community pharmacist and 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 buy a shop. I mean, it couldn't be farther from from the truth, really. So you yeah. just never know. You know, it's that it's that who moved my cheese thing. You can't. It is. You can't. Um, I think I think my advice to folk is not to 
uh, probably along the lines of what you're saying is 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 try and find the positives and look for where change is coming from and um, try and position yourself to, to to take advantage of that change, I guess, because there is lots of exciting stuff happening. There is. I mean, yeah, I'm 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 very positive about the future of the pharmacy profession. Um, not least because my daughter's second year just finished her second year at Nottingham Pharmacy School. So, you know, I put my money where where my mouth is on this. I I, I do believe that ph- pharmacy is a really really good career. And this was her choice to do pharmacy. It's nothing to do with me, but I've certainly encouraged her. To do pharmacy, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real. I think we're in a good place. There's still lots that needs to change, and in community pharmacy in particular, there's so much untapped skill within mm-hmm. potential within community pharmacy, um, and I just don't think the model for how that works is 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 actually designed to make the make the best of that and and showcase the real skillful caring individuals we have within community pharmacy and it's a real shame and we need to we need to do something about that i think i agree i agree and that's probably a conversation for another day but i think a lot a lot a lot of that is is i think is down to the fact that we we've neglected to measure that impact over the yeah. years yeah and, and therefore if we don't measure it and record it um it, it didn't exist in the right. in, in the eyes of the powers that be so that that's a great travesty but maybe we can change that anyway yeah. In, in other news, I'm going to go, um, I've got the school run to do now, so I'm going to walk up the hill and think of a really extreme headline for this podcast so that loads of people listen to it. <laughs> we, we were talking about the Michael Gove type headline. Please don't use that. It's, <laughs> a, it's a vicious rumour and not true. I'll not ask that question. Let's not go there. No, it's been it has been a it has been a real pleasure, Jonathan. And um, yeah, listen, look forward to it. You're welcome. I'd lo- I'll I'll um, I'll leave it a few months, but no doubt I'll be on the phone again to to get you on again and um, hopefully bump into you at uh, at conferences and so on and so forth. Hopefully, yeah, very good. All the best now. Cheers, Jonathan. Bye bye. Bye bye.